0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast, In Good Company. I'm Nicola Tangen, the CEO of the Norwegian Sovereign wealth Fund, and your host today. In this podcast, I talk to the leaders of some of the largest companies we are invested in so that you can learn what we own and also meet these impressive leaders. Today, I'm speaking to James Quincy, the chair and CEO of a company that has satisfied our thirst for over a century, namely the Coca-Cola Company. Coca-Cola was initially introduced as a medicine in the late 1800s, now, they are the world-largest beverage company, with over 200 brands serving 2.2 billion people every day. We own over 1% of Coke, translating into 28 billion kronos, or almost 3 billion US dollars. Now, how did they manage to develop such an iconic brand, and where are they keeping the secret Coca-Cola recipe? Stay tuned. It's funny. We had uh, Bill uh, Bill Gates on the podcast uh, quite recently, and he only had uh, one one thing he asked about: what? diet coke. Diet coke.
1: He is a uh, he's a believer.
0: He's a believer. Now, um, we of course all have we all know about uh, uh, coke. Now, if you were to distill down the kind of secret sauce, uh, what what do you reckon has been the secret sauce to coke?
1: I think one of the pieces, one of the elements of the secret sauce, particularly a brand Coca Cola has been this in two two dimensions. One has been an enduring ability to be both a touchstone to something you know that has been there for a long time. I mean, the, the formula of the same, the, the Spencerian script of the font is the same. Like this, all these touchstone elements of comfort of the past. Yet each generation of managers have made its marketing and its um, it, the way it's brought to the marketplace, relevant for that moment in time. So it is both representative of continuity into the path and comfort, yet also relevant and exciting about the future, which is a very hard balancing act to do. The other mm. hard balancing act which has been achieved is to be both a global brand and local in each of the countries it's sold in. So, yes, it's, it's a global icon. It's, it's obviously heavily linked to being an American icon, But in many countries, most countries in the world, they see it as a profoundly local brand. So, again, generations of managers have made it not just maintain a unique, uh, coherent, global uh, uh, unity, but have also managed to make it profoundly local.
0: Mm. I I believe that uh, 94% of the people in the world actually recognise the Coke logo, which is... uh I mean, it's probably one of the highest brand recognitions in the world, right? Now, how do you how do you develop that type of iconic brand?
1: Um, firstly, a massive, massive, massive amount of consistency. We have never, ever, ever changed the logo. Um, not you know, not that the number of design agencies haven't tried to entice us to do so. Um, not that it was not that it was standardized in 1886. It took us until about 1923 before we standardized the logo. But once we standardized it, we never ever changed it because, you know, people learn to recognize things, not just the words and the sounds, but the visual image. So we have we have protected jealousy, jealously, all that um, iconography around Coke and never ever changed like the font uh, and the fact that Coke is red. Um, Um, all the time. And I think that, you know, after so many years of marketing and success uh, is part of why um, it's so widely recognized.
0: One of the brands which has uh, really done the worst on blind test is uh, Red Bull. I mean, people just absolutely hated it. Yet, uh, you know, they made the boxes smaller, they increased the price, and hey, it's selling like, you know, uh, it's selling incredibly well. So is it all about brand and association?
1: um it's about every you you experience a, a beverage product with five senses it's it's not just about the taste the package it comes with will you can get people to debate heatedly whether a beverage a coke is best drank from a can or a glass bottle or people i mean people have strong opinions on the matter and that's without talking about the liquid, that's just the thing they're holding in their hand because touch matters, smell matters, sight matters, everything matters when you drink the drink. So, these tests you can test one sense if you want, but in the end, it's the package of senses of and the ideas that in, in people's heads that the make the brand of the beverage. You, you cannot fully disaggregate them. Generally speaking, people prefer things that taste good. But you cannot disaggregate the whole mental imagery uh, of what goes
0: together. Now, you often have uh, athletes uh, in your ads. Why is that?
1: Um, people want to connect with people they know sometimes. We generally um, spend most of our connectivity on the overall sport or, uh, or music in general rather than personalities. Personalities can come and go. Um, but the World Cup is always the World Cup. You know, we've been doing the Olympics for almost hundred years. Very long-term sponsors of, of FIFA World Cup, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so, it's much easier to build a long-term platform around the property or, or the event rather than a person who's gonna who's gonna come and go. Uh,
0: you also use Santa Claus as a spokesperson.
1: Yes, true. Why? Um, when you think of Coke, it's happiness, it's optimism. Uh, it's enjoyment. I mean, it's, it's it's a set of things that are very true about the Christmas uh, period, um, and so over the years we have um, we have used the vehicle of Santa Claus or, or, or the polar bears. Um, you know, famously, one of the more modern characterizations of Santa Claus um, was actually was actually uh, uh, it's known as the Somblum Santa, who, by the way, he was Swedish. Um, so I'm very near to you. Um, um, and, and, and it was a, there were actually many Santa Clauses in those uh, in 100 years ago, uh, and the Loon Santa was one a characterization that caught on. And it just fits very naturally with the brand and the time of year and people coming together and sharing meals and occasions.
0: Changing tack a bit uh, and talking about your distribution, you know, I've been to places where there isn't even... Clean water, but uh, guess what you find in the fridge—a coke. So, uh, tell us about your distribution network.
1: Absolutely, the the product reaches um, almost every corner of the world, and I think there are two aspects which are very interesting. One, by by chance, not necessarily by design, it is a it is a product that survives. Uh, a decent amount of time in tip-top condition. You don't get degradation of the product uh, over time. So it stays in you know good drinking order for a very long time. Secondly, obviously, we have created demand, um, and because we've had the philosophy of everyone should make money along the chain, it gets to the far reaches of the world because it's, there's an economics incentive for it to do so. Actually, there's a good uh, podcast by Melinda Gates talking about actually how ultimately we ended up helping the Gates Foundation move some AIDS medicine around um, Africa in very very rural areas. And part of the thing that they, the reason they got to the Coke was they thought, well, if Coke can get everywhere, we can get everywhere. But then they couldn't. And they, they were trying to think, well, why does Coke get there and we don't get there? Because it's it's you know often life-saving medicine. And the answer is, Everyone along the chain wants the Coke to get there because they make a bit of money. So economics matter.
0: Now, you have uh, one competitor called uh, Pepsi, and um, you may have have heard of them. They have a very big market share in Norway. So uh, I think it's one of the countries where it has the biggest market share. How come um, Pepsi in some countries have a high share and in other countries they haven't?
1: Um, A lot of historic reasons is the short answer. Um, there were some countries where they got to before us, uh, and they have had, you know, some historic uh, share positions. Um, uh, uh, there are some countries where we fell asleep at the wheel. Um, uh, I think the one that's big in, in Norway is actually the zero sugar version of it. Spent too long trying to hang on to tab uh, in Norway. Um, mm-hmm. And so that that gen- is generally one of the two buckets. Um, uh, that characterizes where we have yet to uh, become market leader in every single market. There are there are a few left that we are not um, market leader in. Um, but overall, um, our leadership position keeps extending each year. Now looking
0: at the um, consumption trends, what are the trends?
1: Um, so two ways of looking at consumption trends. One is to say they're incredibly stable. Um, one of the arguments I make with the investment community is to look at the beverage industry and think about firstly how stable it is. If you do um, a histogram of the growth rate of the beverage industry, the median growth rate is let's say 4%, 4%, maybe not in the last couple of years, but let's say historically last 30 years, 4%. And the chances are it didn't grow 4%, it was three or five. I mean, this is not fluctuating in wild numbers. It's a very steady industry and that's driven by the fact it's really a small ticket item, beverages are cents or a few dollars, um, and it's a population-driven business. And the industry is largely as yet uncreated in the developing uh, and emerging markets. So there's a long way to go. So firstly, actually, in some ways, the beverage industry is very stable, it grows at a steady rate, and it's got a long runway ahead of it.
0: Is that why Warren Buffett, uh, who is your biggest shareholder, I think he said that. that, uh- is that a ham sandwich could run Coca-Cola. I,
1: I, I, uh, I'm not sure I would count myself as the bread or the ham um, or maybe the peas <laughs> in the ham sandwich. Um, um, but I think Warren loves it for a whole set of very uh, obvious reasons. It, like I said, it's a stable industry. We're the market leader. We gain shares steadily each year. Um, and, and we have a long track record uh, of, of continuing to grow. Um, we had 61 years in a row uh, of uh, growing our dividend, um, and that makes us an all-weather play.
0: Um, moving on to AI, which is really, of course, um, the hot talk now, and we discussed it when we met in, um, in America. Uh, and, and you mentioned it yourself. It's been driving some of your uh, advertising. Now tell us how do you use
1: it. So we the first way I mean, apart from some of the kind of already existing models that kind of optimised for certain things within the supply chain and, and, and other ways it's used. I think this next generation of AI um, examples. We the first thing we did we got we married the text AI with the visual AI and allowed people to make uh, essentially outdoor ads about Coca Cola uh, through the AI machine. So they were able to go in. Pick Coke images and then tell uh, through the chat AI. You know what did you want the image to do? Like, the, I think the winner was there's a Coke with a cat in space. Like there's there's zillions of images, so it was a competition, hundreds of thousands of entries, and we put up a whole selection of the best ones in New York Times Square and the Piccadilly Circus on London. And really, it was empowering consumers uh, to play with the assets and the AI technology. So you can clearly see how AI. Can revolutionize content creation. The reality is, it already is in the movies we watch through the CGI. Um, but that's kind of large set piece movies. This is coming down to a kind of a very simple terrestrial level. It can every image you see outside uh, on outdoor and not that far in the future on advertising um, is going to be can be generated by by the machine, um, and, and that's going to be profoundly change everything. We're also just rolling out internally within our own kind of cloud, basically taking all our internal documents and putting them into the machine. So instead of hopelessly trying to find something in the company, which of course, you never end up finding, um, you can just ask the machine, tell me how to do X. And that X could be, how do I give money to a charity that gets matched by company funds? How do I maintain a juice line? How do I do X? Um, And all of that is going to be at people's fingertips. So it's going to make um, people more productive because it's going to make the knowledge more instantaneously uh, available.
0: How much do you think it could drive
1: productivity? I don't know how high it is up. Um, What I do know, though, is I would rather be on the front end of this than on the back end.
0: Are you worried about it?
1: Yes. uh, I think there are a lot of... Uh, general kind of uh, technology-related uh, potential disasters, um, potential uh, problems, whether it be bad actors or, or, you know, more dystopian kind of outcomes. So th- clearly, there are ways this can go wrong in a general sense, and there are ways it can go wrong in a specific sense related to us. Um, you know, some of these models don't necessarily optimize for truth; they optimize for engagement, and they optimize for credibility. Credibility is not the same as truth. Um, and so I think it's very important as we go on this AI journey, not, you're never going to understand the math behind it. My brain's not big enough for that. But you can understand that it's an optimization model and therefore questioning what are the objectives that it is being set? What is, opt- what is it optimizing for? And what are the parameters around it? What are the safeguard rules around it? What corridor can it operate in? Um, I think are critical questions that can be asked.
0: Well, we're coming out with an expectation document uh, this summer on uh, uh, on this. So, uh, so stay tuned. Um, now, moving on to to governance. So, we um, we recently voted at uh, at your AGM, and um, we looked at the filing that you send us beforehand, and. Um, you spend a whole of 40 pages to explain the salaries and the compensation system does it really need to be that complicated
1: does it need to be that complicated um maybe not but there's a lot of appetite from investors uh to understand the compensation and i think rightly so um to have disclosures arguably got too long for the average investor probably but i think this idea that on that the investors should understand what are the incentive systems in place um, in the company. What are they driving? Because at the end at the end of the day, you know, incentive systems do work. They're not the only factor that people pay attention to. Of course, um, there are other 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 guardrails, other incentives, other ways that you know people derive success uh, in companies, promotions, or other things. But incentives incentives are there because they work. Um, or this at least partially work, and therefore investors should understand what they are there to reinforce it 's all very well as having a clear strategy, but if we had incentives that pointed in a different direction, then you know investors, including myself, should be worried um, and so I, I think it 's important they understand them. Um, mm. This amount of disclosure um, is 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 largely driven by the zeitgeist rather than necessarily. I think 39 or 41 is the right number of pages.
0: Now, as you know, we um, as a shareholder advocate that the role of CEO and chair should be, should be split. And you have both the roles which we vote against. Um, who, is,
1: who is controlling you? Who is overseeing you? I'm overseen, of course, by the board and the lead independent director and the investors. Um, there are no shortage of investors uh, looking uh, over my shoulder uh, as well. Um, and so we feel that for the Coca-Cola company, combining the two roles is the right answer because we have a robust lead independent director and we have a robust uh, board environment in a business that is very large and very complicated. Um, and therefore, we find that at uh, this moment in time, this is what best suits the Coca company. It is ultimately a very large enterprise. There's no... There's no real, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of transparency and visibility to what's going on in Coke and a lot of observers. So it's not like there's an absence of oversight, either by the lead independent or the board or the investors or all the other people who analyze the Coke company. So I think perhaps that provides a different uh, environment. And certainly, um, I, would, I would invite people to look at uh, the, you know, the the results are good too. So I think the governance is there. Um, uh, as it should be, and, and the performance is also there, which is good. But you are, you
0: are yourself a board member in Pfizer. Correct. Uh, how, much, how much influence do you feel there that you have over the CEO and the chair?
1: Uh, I, I feel that the board can absolutely uh, execute its role uh, if, if it so chose to do so. Um, um, uh, you know, there are cr- a set of critical decisions by the board capital allocation, CEO succession. Um, and and you know being on both ends of the uh of the stick, so to speak, between the two boards um i I don't feel it's a problem
0: okay. anything you learned from Pfizer that you are applying to coke
1: yeah i i, I um obviously I joined them at a rather interesting time at the beginning of twenty twenty um, and I had thought that we had got better at innovation, but when I saw what they were able to do to bring the vaccine to the market in less than a year, given that it's normally many, many years before a vaccine gets up, was truly a staggering process. The rate at which innovation can be called forth Mm. when you need to, when the the focus is there, uh, was firstly incredibly impressive in their case, and I think a source of inspiration to me as I think about our own business.
0: Now, um, obesity has grown to pretty epidemic proportions. Uh, I think now more than a billion people worldwide are uh, characterized as obese. Um, do you think we'll be able to reduce obesity rates going forward?
1: Uh, I think we we can and should uh, reduce obesity rates uh, going forward. I mean, we certainly have probably happened a, a few decades ago, gone past the point where there are more calories available in the world um, than human consumption. Generally speaking, for most of human history, we've had a slight deficit. Now there's enough food uh, generated. Um, so we, it absolutely needs to uh, be an overall, and it, and it is an overall governmental um, policy uh, policy focus. And, and a bit like the earlier questions, like what's our role in it? We, yes, we have a role. Um, uh, we need to make sure we're offering uh products uh that help in that sense whether it be smaller portions of our of our calorie products or zero sugar portion uh, zero sugar um, products or as we innovate uh to reduce the calorie profile um so absolutely it, it needs to be part of the future
0: mm. we are seeing uh, many governments implementing sugar taxes what is your view on that
1: yeah I think, look, there, there's a couple of pieces. Taxes certainly tend to uh, affect demand. The question, uh, I think, would be twofold from my point of view. One is, it, it, is the action likely to produce the, uh, the outcome that they're looking for? If the outcome is less obesity, does a very narrow tax on one product category, is it likely to drive down obesity? And you can look around the world where they have the sh- sugar taxes on soft drinks or beverages in general. Um, and find that essentially it hasn't uh, made a material difference. Um, the 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 problem needs to be addressed in a much broader uh, perspective. That's point number one. Um, point number two is I think the 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 where the um, where the taxes have been put in place that also provide an incentive for innovation, i.e., for example, they're tiered. The more the sugar, the more the tax. The less the sugar, the less the tax. Then there's an incentive for companies to. Continue to provide great tasting beverages, but to slowly bring down um, the calorie profile, as as indeed happened uh, to some extent uh, uh, in salt in some countries. So I think, you know, pressurizing things with taxes. Really, it's about innovation and getting people to to change their diets at the time, which is a broad topic that needs multi pronged action. Um, and, and and I think that's really a matter for the policy.
0: You're also moving into alcoholic beverages. What's what are the plans here?
1: Yeah, we look. We look we're, we're we 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 have been experimenting uh, in in the boundaries between the non-alcoholic and the alcoholic world. Um, um, you know, as in as every industry develops, people look for the white spaces and look for the opportunities that are most adjacent. Um, and there are a set of occasions um, which which tend to mix uh, alcohol and, and, and soft drinks. Uh, mixers, um, and and we see an opportunity. What is what is called the alcohol ready to drink category. So premixed cocktails, hard seltzers. If you're in the US, or, or spiked versions things. Um, and it's a very interesting space um, because a lot of the drinks in that space leverage our existing brands. Um, and if they can be provided in a ready to drink format, it's potentially very interesting. So we're currently rolling out Jack Daniels and Coca Cola premixed. Um, and and I think that's going to be very interesting to see how how big could this segment be. We we don't need more hobbies uh, at the Coke company, but if this could be a material segment, and I think Jack Daniels will will be a uh, and Coke will be a leading indicator, uh, it could be int- very interesting for us.
0: Now the last question in this uh, in this area, you are taking action to reduce plastic waste. Um, now what are what are you doing here, and um, what do you think is achievable here in the longer term?
1: Yeah. So plastic waste, I think, has two components. And I think with all these kind of systemic issues, it's important to make sure that everyone can restate their objectives and clarify what is the outcome they want. And I think here it's we don't want waste in the environment, whether that be land or sea, and actually preferably with a lower carbon footprint. If we state those two objectives, What we see is that a circular economy on packaging material can achieve both objectives. So we we set ourselves a goal called the world without waste. So by 2030, all our packaging will be recyclable. We'll collect a bottle and can for everyone we sell. And we'll use 50% of that back in our own packaging because it it often gets downcycled into other uses of recycled uh, PET. If we can do that, we can create a circular economy in which there is no waste in the land and the sea and the carbon footprint of recycled material is much less than original. So whether that be PET, aluminium or glass, all those three formats collected and recycled have a low carbon footprint. So it's it's, it's, a, it's an, a, a very attractive objective. Secondly, this is not some uh, blue sky fantasy. There are already countries in the world which have almost 100% collection. Actually, a number of the Scandinavian countries are already there. There are also countries in the world where over half of our PET bottles are uh, made from recycled plastic. In fact, a number of countries in Europe, including some of the Scandinavian countries, all the PET bottles that we sell are made from 100% recycled PET. Um, so you have a fully circular economy that basically drives out waste and, and, and materially lowers the carbon footprint. So this is, this is a very doable uh, long-term objective. Um, And the technology available to make it happen exists. Of course, it can be made better with innovation. Um, So it's a matter of collective will rather than something new that needs to be invented.
0: James, moving on to um, leadership, you talk about being an authentic leader. But how authentic can one be when one runs a big public company where you have to be so careful with how you communicate?
1: Um I don't think there's a difference between uh, being authentic and at times being reserved or being diplomatic. Um, I probably like that in my personal life anyway, so maybe that makes it easier. but I think look let me let me put it this way. It was probably possible 20, 30, 40 years ago for you to say one thing to the employees, another thing to the customer, another thing to the investor, etc, etc, et etc, cetera, et cetera, et cetera, another thing to the media. But this is a radically more transparent world and and so the first thing if you recognize that the message ultimately needs to be the same to everyone, otherwise it's going to go horribly wrong, you just start there and 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 say okay, so that's so there's no point in trying to spin everything everywhere. I just need to tell people you know what's the what's what is the what's the point of view and it's basically the same message for everyone, and then it needs to be grounded. In, in what you believe because there's no nothing more obvious you know when someone is making it up as they go along um and so you know if you're inauthentic people spot it immediately um and so i think it's very important to be grounded in like what do you believe in um and what stra- what strategies what companies what things are you bought into um, and then it's much easier to represent it i think it'd be very hard to represent something you didn't believe in um, especially knowing you're going to have to say the same thing to everyone.
0: What's the one thing you would love to say, which you're not supposed to say?
1: <laughs> I, 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 there's nothing because, you know, why, <laughs> why would I not say anything? No, I mean, look, I, I, I put it like this to people. Sometimes people find out we, the, the South is a very, um, um, is uh, it is a polite part of the world. Actually, most parts of the world are quite polite and quite indirect. When you, when you ultimately stand back far enough on the world, most parts of the world, um, you know, shouting and screaming is not a way forward. Um, and so I say to people, look, there, you need to be able to disagree without being disagreeable. So, you know, shouting and swearing, it's like, that may make you feel better, but it's not productive. And, and so you need to find ways, yeah you don't have to agree with it, everything else, but disagree with that we so I think that is the art form here. It's not about hiding something uh it's about communicating uh to be to connect rather than just kind of venting.
0: How do you disagree in a good way
1: look i don't let's we don't need to whip out the management books, but it's the contrast to shouting and screaming, so it's like, okay, you know let's. It's a it's a rational debate. It's, it's generally speaking, the other person on the other side of people wants to feel that they were heard. You know, without gonna going into mumbo jumbo. It's like yeah, I, I like do I understand what you're telling me? I hear what you're saying. Do I understand it? Exploring why they're saying what they're saying and why they're saying it, and then being able to connect. And say okay, I get that. Here's why I'm saying what I'm saying. It doesn't mean you're going to agree, and you have to be able to cope with the the stress and the tension in the situation. Uh, that there's not an agreement, but that doesn't mean you can't mutually understand um, and respect each other's positions.
0: What's the most difficult part of being a CEO?
1: Um, there's one part of the CEO that you never find out until you get there, and and the way I describe it is: if you think about an, an organization, let's just use the classic idea of a, an organizational pyramid. It's a it's a big it's a big pyramid. And most people think, okay, you spend your years working your way up the pyramid, and eventually you'll get to the apex of the pyramid. And, you know, in a simple way, everyone in the organization will work for you. And every general manager in the job, general manager, job in the pyramid, kind of, they have people working for them, but they see their way to the apex. But then when you get to the apex, something different happens. You find out that there's another pyramid, except for it's upside down. You're at the bottom, at the apex of the upside-down pyramid, and above you are zillions of people trying to give you a point of view who want your time. And that doesn't happen to any other person in the organization. And whether it's investors, media, stakeholders, everyone has a point of view and directs it at the CEO. So you, have, you are much more fragmented, and you have way more stakeholders than anyone else in the organization. And it's, it's kind of a shock when you get there. What's the trick to that? Say no politely.
0: <laughs> How do you uh, continue to learn?
1: Um, I like learning. I am I, um, probably slowly becoming more old school in the sense that I prefer to read it than to watch a podcast or, or, or a talk. Or, um, but I'm slowly moving with the times. But I, I do have to say I still have um uh, and, uh, and, uh a yearning for the tactile nature of getting something uh from a book and being able to ponder it as you read it rather than being marched along at the pace of of whoever's trying to teach you
0: what's what's good um have you read lately
1: um I've read a few books lately on the on the fiction side I read a book called Clara and the Sun which is kind of a and in the future novel about a re- the relationship between robots and us, it's 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 very different. Um, it's a Japanese British writer. On the kind of more businessy side, um, I tend to go for more of the history ones. I in the the last couple, I re- I read one of them called Money for Nothing, which was a history of the South Sea Bubble Crisis, which I recommend to people. The other one was the the Lords of Finance, um, because I think. You know, I'm very intrigued and interested in the fact that ultimately, you know, the underlying structural changes, they always win in the end. Things can go up and down, but the profound structural stuff in the end, you know, wins out, which was ultimately the story of both these, uh, both these books.
0: What motivates
1: you? Um, I'm kind of mission motivated um, in the sense of, You know, I really want to do the thing. Uh, Like I have to feel like I really want to do the thing. Whatever that thing ends up being, whether it be, you know, uh, I think we've, for example, we put code back on a growth trajectory uh, over the last number of years, or I want to learn to be good at X. Um, I, I normally start off with the perspective, how hard can it be? And then, of course, you find out that most things are much harder than you think, and you're not very good at them. But occasionally you find some things that you are both good at and you enjoy, or they don't have to be the same. Um, the two Venn di- It's a Venn diagram that doesn't necessarily overlap between enjoyment and good good at. Um, uh, but I, I, I experiment with lots of different things.
0: Jensen Huang of uh, Navidia, who we had on recently, also talks about this, uh, how hard can it be? But he also talks about uh, uh, working hard. And he says, well, you know, you have working hard and then you have working
1: insanely hard. Where are you on this scale? Um, life is a marathon. You can have periods of working insanely hard, but it's hard to live your whole life at that pace. Um, and so, you know, I think it, 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 the pendulum swings between working hard and working insanely hard um, because you can keep it up uh, forever. It's, life is not a set of sprints. Uh, it's, it's a marathon. Now, some people can run a lot faster than other people, um, but you've got to pace yourself, particularly uh, when you get to be kind of CEO, I think. How do you pace yourself? Um, I, I, you know, I'm somewhat European in that sense. It's like there needs to be some boundaries. I know it's a 24-7 uh, job. But there, there also needs to be some downtime. You need to be able to walk away. Not always. And if there's a crisis, there's, you know, the, sometimes you're the only person who can decide and it's 24-7 literally. Um, but you have to be able to walk away and do something else.
0: What's your advice to young people? We have a lot of young professionals listening to this?
1: Um, my, my first piece of advice, or my main piece of advice that then te- comes with a caveat, is um, find something you really love doing. Um, sometimes people take jobs because they think it gives them status or money. But I feel in the long run, you're likely to rise to the top or, 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 or be happier doing the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning. If you don't love what you're doing, the chances of getting out of bed early and working insanely hard just go down in my mind. Certainly do over time. Having said that, the caveat is you need to be okay with the life, the choices that, in, that implies. I mean, sometimes people talk about work-life balance. It's not a balance between work and life. Work is part of life. Your life is composed of a whole set of things, and and it's a a 100% bar chart. You can't have more life and more time available. It's a question of distribution. Um, And if you choose a career that has more time or whatever, more money, less money, more status, less, you have to be comfortable with that choice within your 100% bar chart. And
0: what's the most fun piece of your pie chart?
1: Look, everything can be fun. There can be times... Uh, uh, you know, when you do really cool stuff. I mean, like I got a lot out of uh, all the AI marketing recently, but there can be cool stuff on, on on the family side, like you know, spending time with family and friends, seeing them at grow and achieve stuff, or even for yourself, going off and learning something new or trying something new, even if you're terrible at it. Um, just trying something new and learning something new.
0: Um, uh, and the last thing you learned that you thought was cool,
1: uh, I be- I I've, I've become a part of the sad or not so sad trend to trying the swimming in cold water. And I am oh, i found out I, I had to Google how fast I was and see whether it was any good. And I was really slow, unbelievably slow, like right down at novice. And I'm like, okay, but it was fun.
0: Well, I have to say, if you want to come training in cold water, you are very welcome <laughs> up uh, to Oslo. We, we have some really good conditions for that. So... Uh, I might come
1: in July. <laughs> um,
0: just one more thing I'd love to... Ask you about so the Coca-Cola recipe, I think it's called the merchandise 7X. Closely guarded secret. You know what's in it? Uh,
1: if I had a better memory, I would. The formula for Coca Cola lives in a safe to which only a very few people have access. I went in there once just because I became CEO. I have to go in with someone else, looked at the piece of paper and more or less instantly forgot everything about it when I walked out of the room.
0: How many people have access to the safe? That's a secret. And tell me about the safe. How do, what does it look like?
1: It's very, very big. Well, actually, most yeah. of the safe is the concrete wall.
0: And, and is the recipe the only thing in the safe?
1: Uh, no. There was a filing cabinet. It's like the Matrix. There's a filing cabinet with other stuff in it. I didn't look at the other stuff. I don't and if, of, we, I
0: if, I, if I came to visit, were I allowed inside?
1: No. <laughs> That's a simple one. You can look so at the hard. outside, but no, you can't go in. Sounds good. Well,
0: you you are clearly very good at uh, saying no in a very polite manner. So uh, I have to give you that. <laughs> James, it's been tremendous to have you on the show. Uh, absolutely love it. Uh, good luck with everything. And, uh, you know, go get them. Thank you. Great.
1: Nice to see you again.
0: Fantastic. Take care. Bye. Right, bye.
1: Bye.